So the only like likes I get is on the documentary Alt Right Age of Rage. I think it was on Netflix. It was, mm-hmm. and it was terrible. I hated it because I'm just like, all you all you did was it was one of those things where it's like, well, let's see what they have to say for themselves. And it's like, <laughs> you know, at a certain point they're they're saying the same thing, and right. you can easily refute it. But it's not new information. It's though. not new, but you're like you're going you're bending over backwards to be so balanced that it's like we have to devote half the film to like them just like explaining themselves and like right. what they're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, I just I just, you know, gave it like a star and a half and I was like, you know, this made a joke. This sucks, you know, tiki torches, <laughs> like they're idiots. And that's the only thing I'll, I'll just get a random alert. That's like this person you don't know likes this. Like they like that you said this. <laughs> and I'm like, it makes me feel bad about it because I'm like, this that's fucking layup. Like especially if you're on like a film it's easy, logging yeah. site, I would much rather you get on there and like you know, oh, what did this guy say about I feel pretty starring Amy Schumer? Now that <laughs> that I'll give you credit for because you actually like, <laughs> you're just like, what does this guy think of this stupid movie? That's it. You should have just praised it, and that would have been oh, yeah. a much harder but then sale to. <laughs> But then am I, am I going to get triple the likes from the like freaks that are like, and it's got my name on it. They're like that guy. <laughs> I'm going to uh, start listening to the grand gesture. Madden, we know. <laughs> I'm running the Patriots offense. I can't help if all the scheme fits <laughs> go that way. <laughs> it's like today I saw see how the Seahawks are looking uh, at Jordy Nelson and it said other teams interested, the New England Patriots. I said, of course. <laughs> Fucking course. All right. Copycat. See, try to throw a little football talk in there. Get all of your fan base to actually like pay attention to this. My fan base. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice of you to make up that party of one. That's great. The screams of the victim deaden his pain. The act of killing makes him feel intensely alive. What he feels next is not guilt, but disappointment. It was not as wonderful as he'd hoped. Maybe next time, it will be perfect. And as his determination builds to take another life, he plans in obsessive detail what props he'll bring, what knots he'll tie. Let me ask you guys something. What turns you on? I mean, what really does it for you? Is it a great body? Is it a nice smile? Is it beautiful legs? Well, what turns on a serial killer is the suffering and death of another human being. Hyro was a big fan of your uh, Suspiria episode. He was. <laughs> it was kind of, uh, it was, <laughs> without being insulting to Dave, it was kind of insulting. He's like, now that's, that's the top <laughs> episode you ought to be doing. <laughs> He's like, I'd actually, and see, I'd listen to the show. And I'm like, oh, what element has changed here? I'm like, oh, Dave was <laughs> <laughs> That's scary because uh, I know what type of character that Hyra is. Now I would imagine that Dave would not have been a fan of that episode. I mean, he listened to it, I guess, enough to hear that you <laughs> insulted him. <laughs> yeah, I saw that was his takeaway. Uh, maybe I should leave that that just small snippet in <laughs> to turn your your one fan against you. <laughs> Dude, you like my fucking episodes, you bitch. <laughs> Welcome to our episode on Copycat for the Grand Gesture. Returning guest, Derek Stewart. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm kind of shocked. Last uh, last episode, I made mention of uh, Ted Bundy as some sort of strange romantic type, which unfortunately, like, I'm being facetious there, but that's kind of come back. I've seen, uh, I guess there was some sort of Netflix thing, like the Ted Bundy tapes, and mm-hmm. I think there's a movie with Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy. Yeah, is it is it Ted Bundy that he's playing? I know he's playing a serial killer. I think it's it, Ted Bundy. What's it's Ted, he was supposed probably to be, not John Wayne Gacy. So was he the clown dude? Cool. Yeah, he's the clown. He's he was not seen what. as handsome, right? No, Ted Bundy like was. Driver. Yes, <sighs> kind of an issue I had with a uh, copycat with that. Um, that it's got to be like the you know spoiler alert for this movie that came out. How old is this now? 24? Good lord, 24 years ago. I think I was 6. So, there you go. I was uh, I was 13 when this came out. Didn't see it theatrically. Saw it on VHS. I think like <laughs> you should with a movie like this. Probably. 
I actually had uh, just to date myself even more. Even though before we started, you know, in on this, we were talking about how old your super fan Hiro is, like how ancient <laughs> he is compared to us. But when I'm, I was watching Dustin it Bones. again, I uh, <laughs> I elbowed Brittany. It was like the, uh, I think it's like the like, I don't know. It's not like it's like bubbles, like the neon bubbles on Sigourney Weaver's, like one of her like 15 fucking monitors she has. That was like our like windows 95 wallpaper of choice. Pretty fucking old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Pretty old. I mean, the graphics that, that they have uh, pulled up in the correspondence that they have, I don't know, via email or whatever it is, uh, that definitely dates the movie a little bit. I don't know about you, but during that time period, nobody ever sent me a, a movie file. Not an original no. movie that they, they'd made with, I don't know, I don't know what uh, was Photoshop at the time, but kind Windows of- Movie Maker. Is that the grand gesture of this? You know, the, the, look at that effort that this serial killer puts into terrorizing Sigourney Weaver. I, d- I did notice that, and I, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, because I still have trouble doing that on my apps now, like just cutting out, you know, heads. That's, and- Derek, that's not a uh, talent thing, because you're actually pretty artistic. I remember reaching out to you when you got your new iPad, you get your Apple Pencil, and I'm like, hey, man, could you do like a, like a logo for me? And you're like, that's really interesting. And like, I can imagine you like <laughs> opening the app and like, then like, mm, I'll get to this later. And then never opening the app again. Oh, I, th- I just thought you found someone that had more talent because I never heard about it. I think that again. was a podcast I never even started because I was like, oh, I reached out to Derek with this and he thought it was stupid. He told me he liked it. But... <laughs> no. <laughs> Blame me for your failures. <laughs> Look, the only failures I have in podcasting are the one the podcasts that are actually launched. Those are the failures. <laughs> the ones that never launch, those still have a chance. I'll tell you one mistake's happened to me on here more than once. Uh, I'll have to look at the numbers. You know, I don't know if the superior numbers are in. I'm not really giving you grade A material, but when we get to Sleepless in Seattle, that, that for like a rom com podcast, there we go. Oh yeah. Oh Superfan yeah, Hyro has complained about some of my programming. Copycat would probably be one of them. Yeah, it kind of does go along with uh, Superior when I was watching it. Like, how am I going to make any sense of this? Easier to follow, though. Yeah, yeah, I will give it that. Much easier than things like Suspiria or even the – what was the other film? We just got through talking about it uh, not too long ago. Greta, which I'm sure no one has seen. Yeah, there you go. Me, you, and then 10 other people that – Hopefully, download my podcast because we'll be were, the expert. Yeah, if there were ten other it. people, <laughs> if there were ten other people, they weren't in the theater with me. That's all I know. So I, I had you on for Greta because I know how you feel about the older ladies. So we're kind of backtracking a little bit with Sigourney Weaver, but she, you know, she was a nice, you know, middle aged lady at this point. Oh, she looked great. <laughs> <laughs> That's where like a clip would play. We just let that moment hang for a little bit. <laughs> I want to get I was into that. If you're gonna let that go. Here's my uh, here's my weird curveball take on this one. Okay. This feels like the perfect thriller. Not only is it a throwback, mid '90s. We talked about the stupid screensaver and the, you know, the CRTs and all that. But for the age of Trump, this feels like a really good movie to watch because even the people, the the bad guys here, the the killers that are doing these horrible things to people, have a great reverence for you know misguided love romantically connection to Sigourney Weaver who is an expert in her field (laughs) during Trump's presidency especially with him but even I guess some of his more diehard fan base there seems to be a retaliation against the intellectual elite and a disregard for you know quote-unquote experts as they would say in the field like there's no need for people to put years or even substantial thought into something and everyone can have an opinion. So everyone can have an opinion. Mine's just as valid as hers. So it basically removes the need for experts. Everyone's an expert or no one's an expert. One or the other. And what I liked about this film is the cops here, uh, like Holly Hunter is very capable and is savvy and smart, but knows and is comfortable with, being outside her realm of expertise like right she and I, I think it's like the dynamic that i like is between the two women obviously because corny weaver is oftentimes under duress because she's the one being stalked and she's the one willing to overstep and basically say like why aren't you doing this 
and sort of acting on an assumption that she knows what's best on how to do their job. Sure. But Holly Hunter never feels that way. And is totally like confident and comfortable with asking for guidance and knowing when she's out of her element. And so she goes to someone who knows better. Exactly. I think that makes her, I guess, to strip it down, the smartest character in the film because she knows what she doesn't know and is able to concede. And it doesn't make her seem like any uh, less than capable uh, detective. She's still able to do her job. The, the The fact that she's able to find individuals who have a greater awareness about the stuff that she does is what makes her such a, a great detective. I and think. They, they don't play her as like, you know, this is not Woody Harrelson – and true detective to Matthew McConaughey is like dark cynic, like philosopher. Right. He's not like the, you know, beer chugging every man, like the yokel, like the funny guy, like Holly Hunter in, I think in another film, she would be like the genius. Like you would, <laughs> you would see someone like Angelina Jolie play this cop, but she also happens to be like expert profiler, but she's also a yeah. beat cop. And, I tell you what, it was like a it was like a warm, you know, bath I was taking with this one because I had not actually watched it since I was a kid, and I think I probably at thirteen took it for granted, like, yeah, that was fun, but that's not like yeah. you know, that's not something that's like deserving of merit. <laughs> Two thousand nineteen, <laughs> I look at it and I'm like, what happened to these type of movies? What actually, what happened to these type of people? <laughs> Where these are characters that we could actually take for granted in the mid nineties theatrically, but now <laughs> Holly Hunter looks like. You know, a goddamn saint. Because <laughs> everyone's so cynical now. I guess I don't. I don't know. Hello, San Francisco homicide. I'm Inspector Getz. This is Inspector Monahan. Yes. Is Helen Hudson here, please? Well, I'm her assistant. Can I? We could have just a couple of minutes of her time. All right, come in. Uh, this way, please. Dr. Hudson, this is uh, Inspector Getz in Monaghan. He's escaped again, hasn't he? I'm sorry? Well, is he out or isn't he? I'm not following, ma'am. We'd like to talk to you about your phone calls to our office. Phone calls? I didn't make any phone calls. <clears throat> well, isn't this nice? Would everyone like to sit down? Shall I make some coffee? Get me my stuff, Annie. Joyfully. I, um, talked to you this morning, Dr. Hudson. Do you remember? Of course I remember. There's nothing wrong with my memory. You called me a crank. Yes, ma'am. Well, I suppose I am. I got a couple of crank calls myself. That's why I thought Daryl Lee Cullen must have gotten out of prison. Ma'am, if Daryl Lee had gotten out, I, I assure you, you'd be the first to know. Well, good. <laughs> I'm relieved. I hate to sound like a broken record, but you called us, Dr. Hudson? Yes. I did. I'm sorry. It won't happen again. You mind telling us why? There's a serial killer out there who strangled three women. He's going to do it again. Even if there's a chain of evidence connecting these murders, nothing's been reported in the press. How do you connect them? I don't know. 20 years of clinical experience and having serial killers on the brain. Would you work with us on this? You're kidding, right? No, ma'am. I thought you knew that I, uh... I don't do this anymore. I'm retired. Is that why you called our office 14 times? Because you're retired? Come on, help me out here. I really admire your work. Does she do this... this wide-eyed little girl routine often? Yeah. Does it work? Mm, usually. Sometimes. You can spare me the bullshit, Inspector. You don't admire me. You don't even like me. None of your people do. But the beautiful part is I don't give a fuck. That's the upside of having a nervous breakdown. So, if you don't mind, I have a very busy day. See, you're right. In, in most scenarios now, that her character and Sigourney Weaver's character would just be combined into one person who had that that um, almost transcendent level of awareness uh, and skill set about her job at the same time. Um, and you don't really have to do that. You can actually have more than one character uh, bite off a piece of, of kind of that dynamic and that and that idea. Um, and what you end up having is a much better relationship between the two of them. Um, and you can kind of really delve into to that relationship a whole lot more 
Um, and I, at the beginning, I really didn't put much stock into their dynamics and their interaction um, as much as I was able to do later on when when you could kind of start seeing that Holly Hunter was a little bit empathetic to to some of the issues that Sigourney Weaver had with the agoraphobia um, and her just overall lack of comfort. Were you? At first off, had, had, had you seen this before? I had never seen this before. Okay. I had never even heard of it, uh, quite oh, honestly. So. Sigourney Weaver? Uh, movie not, I mean, you're big, like, you know, I assume, like, you love 80s movies. Her cutoff was 86. So. Oh, so you're you not uh, Harry Connick Jr. here. You're not elevating her to, like, some sort of, like, status of, like, she's the ideal woman that must You'll be. get a kick out of this. I didn't know that was Harry Connick Jr. at first. And He's ugly was, up. He's roughed up. Yeah. I was almost mad at myself when I when I looked it up and I was like, "That's my Harry." I had no idea. <laughs> and so then I started thinking about when Harry met Sally because he the the soundtrack for that. And I said, "Why aren't we doing that right now?" That's neither here nor there. But Wait, Harry Connick Jr. is on the soundtrack for that. For when Harry met Sally. Mm-hmm. How old was he then? He had to be in his uh, mid twenties. Okay, well, he had to be like a young man for that. Well, yeah, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, so he's you been know that's a, a film we've not done. For this romantic comedy podcast, <laughs> you know, copycat my, though. <laughs> if I have to give a number one film for myself, that's that's that. So I'll be waiting. That is super fan Hiro's uh, number one film of all time. That or Goodfellas. Okay. I don't know if he's got like a uh, you know the comedy side and the drama. I don't right. know, but I feel like those are the two he mentions most often. Um, it's a lot of embarrassing comparisons between him and I lately. Yeah, it's very. I mean, you know, otherwise y'all are exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so moving back, <laughs> moving back, Harry Connick Jr. Um, ugly hillbilly, I guess. Um, I think so. Although he has kind of like strange, like looks like highlights in his hair. I don't know. Like I, th- there was like <laughs> this sort of like disconnect I had where it's like maybe because it is Harry Connick Jr. Who's like, you know, a crooner, like a heartthrob, I guess at the time, but, uh, right where I felt like they kind of maybe overstepped where really it's like the way he just sort of talks and carries himself. I think he maybe needed less of the, the aesthetic, uh, ugliness, <laughs> just that accent and just him like the scene where he just demands her, her panties, like, just like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's creepy enough without just the, the way he looks. So I guess good job. To they, they did they definitely wanted to play up that he was a creepy psychopath backwoods can't be trusted lives in a shack that kind of thing uh, uh, i wasn't necessary i don't know but um didn't know it was him so yeah, well that's but, our i guess our meet cute in a way is like the opening like almost like the opening death like the the woman that gets killed uh before the the title card which is what sets up uh weaver's like, Agoraphobia, obviously, like, you know, sure. a, a traumatizing assault that she has um, after she's given this lecture about serial killers. And she even says, like, you know, I, I can't remember the, the stats, but, you know, basically someone in the audience, like, statistically would <laughs> lean that way with the right. particular predilection. And did you notice um, with it being a first time watch, it was kind of like, I was looking for it cause I'd seen it before, but I remembered that the actual, like the killer, the, the copycat killer that's going to, you know, attempt to do what Harry Connick Jr. could not, um, uh, was, is actually in the audience. He's in multiple scenes. Oh no, I didn't know that. No, I just remember that the Harry Connick Jr.'s, uh, that serial killer was in the audience. I think obviously it's but... even when she's saying like, you know, it's probable that one of you, the camera is hmm. actually on him. Because um, he's kind of oh, got the cool. distinctive, like, I don't know, what, mid-90s sort of, like, hipster glasses there. The, like, the, the yeah, round, the round ones. Yeah. Um, and he's also at the police station at one scene where he's trying to – it's very, like, Seven-like where you actually have, yeah. like, the, you know, the Kevin Spacey guy, like, actually talking to the, an officer and being, you know, dismissed uh, as unimportant. I, I actually kind of dug – I dug the Harry Connick Jr. thing – Going back to that, I guess my watching in the age of Trump, and that I feel like it's not that he's trying to kill this person, this woman who's an expert on the field, and thus an expert on him, uh, to like take down someone that's a threat to his very existence. Like you know, her saying these things is going to possibly cause law enforcement to catch me. Right. But it, it's this weird like she knows me, 
and she's the only one who knows me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like really kind of dug that because what he's doing is horrifying, but there's this strange respect level, which is hard as you can say that it's being respectful when you want to like murder someone, sure. but it is, there's some sort of genuine, like, um, exposure that he feels with her that is kind of effeminate in a way. It's like Weaver, like is very like masculine in this film. Like in the way she, even the way she talks to the other detectives, I really like the way I just like a lot of the characters here. Yeah. It, it's his, his role is, you know, when we talk about like Batman and the Joker kind of thing, it's, uh, I, I don't actually want to kill you. I, in fact, I think he'd probably be pretty upset if someone actually did kill her and, and carry that out. Um, it's more of that, that intimate connection that other people don't get us. They don't get your obsession with me and they don't understand my obsession with killing people the way that you do. Um, and so for that very reason, I, I need this game to continue, uh, you know, forever really. And that makes a lot of sense. And it also kind of makes sense when you're talking about, uh, if you do any the month of, um, you know, sociopathic tendencies, that need for that continued high, um, he had maybe killed all the 18 year old girls that he was going to kill. And so this is the, you know, this is the golden egg, this 45 year old. He aged out of it appropriately. He aged out of it. Yes. He was the not going to be not going to be Matthew McConaughey from Days and Confused. Like there was some sort of like <laughs> self reflective moment with she the serial killer. <laughs> he was like, you know what? Going to the bars and trying to pick up a co-ed. <laughs> is this really what I should be doing with my life? I need to up my game. Yeah, pretty much. It does put the film like I think it, it dances around it, but weaver is playing to a certain degree a damsel in distress right like with the agoraphobia after after she survives the attack um right and she's being stalked again by this killer that um i think there's a scene where like the cops ask her like you know why her like wait why would they even like target you and she's like i'm their pinup girl like that mm-hmm. that sort of thing so yeah she's the princess in the castle here for the the killers but i never really felt like like I rewatched Scream for Halloween uh, last fall, and there is this sort of like, and they they play on it like knowingly, but there is this sort of titillating factor of like Nev Campbell as like this virgin sort of girl who's like suffered a lot, and it's like you know like a stiff wind is gonna knock her over, and it's like they they want to like kill her before she's like exposed to the world anymore, like they want to like kill innocence, and that yeah. happens a lot. <laughs> I like that here the. Damsel in Distress is like a pill-popping alcoholic who's hateful <laughs> and kind of condescending and like knows that she's the queen right. bee of this this like internet freak show. And then she's almost offended that people don't recognize that. Like, what the fuck? You, of course it's me. It's always going to be a, me. She's the exact opposite of, of like the final girl tropes, right? She Exactly. She has all of these vices and is unapologetic about uh, those vices that exist. She doesn't feel some need to, to, to repent about any of them. And I think the agoraphobia, while it would make sense, uh, kind of logically speaking, after someone experiences some sort of trauma that, you know, some sort of anxiety would, would take place like that. But it's also really convenient to, and I don't even mean this in a negative way, but it's really convenient to add that layer with a character who is so strong um, because she has such a level of, of insight and awareness to how all these serial killers think and behave. Um, and you probably could have ended the movie in like, 45 minutes with her her intellect being able to find out who it was but if we add on this layer that now makes her inherently weak um that i think it it stretches out how hard it would be for her to kind of come to that conclusion she can't leave her home there are so many things that she couldn't well she can always be touched in a way right like she she will not not only just the physical trappings of it of her being afraid to to leave her you know her comfort zone her home be around people that's as we talked about in our great episode you know she tried to point out people in the crowd someone's a killer here. <laughs> she has very exactly. good reason to not get in a room of i don't know 75 men white men i think in particular <laughs> as I usual that's exactly what she said <laughs> yes <laughs> That, maybe that's a uh, – maybe in the age of Trump in the negative way, I was happy to, to hear it because uh, if you try to point out white men now, 
it's it's usually because there's been some sort of corruption uh financially or you know mixed with some sort of sexual assault something of that nature uh or you know an act of terrorism uh maybe i was just wanting to go back to the days where it was one-on-one intimacy (laughs) (laughs) or they just killed three or four picked up two women and put them in the trunk it was so much easier back then it's gotten way more widespread. They bit off more than they can chew. Well, it's, it's like disgusting. the you know the hand checking rules in the NBA. It's like now it's oh like oh my god. <laughs> it's like you know you try to put Jordan's numbers in a particular context, and then now we're <laughs> now we're getting into mass shootings. <laughs> like they're just you know I'm trying to make that Can't compare errors. Did it work? Did it, MJ and LeBron did that work with mass shootings? And there we go. We brought killers? it all back. All right, we're talking about our mass shootings with Lot, man, but we'll bring it back to two black NBA players. <laughs> Let's connect it all. See, really, it's, it's Michael Jordan's fault uh, for all of this. So. I mean, this being a movie podcast, we're probably already losing people, but like, oh, we're talking about sports, talking about NBA and hand checking. <laughs> Time to check out, which means the last thing they're going to hear is me talking about the glory days of white men <laughs> harming women. Um, they can get away with it in a different period. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, it. I don't know. Like, the, I think the. I I buy into the the conceit of her agoraphobia based on what we see in the opening sequence. I wonder if it changes things, like you know, because and the time period, right? Like, it's like early days of the internet, or at least you know, yeah. commercial internet. Her being someone that, you know, could be contacted. I think the movie plays a lot different now. You know, if she has a Twitter account where, fucking trolls can get on there and say you're hot or I hate you or I'm going to kill you which is, you know, a daily experience, I assume, for women on, on Twitter, not nearly as special. But there was something right. unique where even the cops don't seem to. There, There's a sequence which I think, uh, what is his name? Uh, Dermot Mulroney, who I always uh, mix up with Dylan McDermott. I think it's the other actor's name. <laughs> All white I have dark hair. Look the same. <laughs> Either one could be a serial killer. We don't. Yeah. Uh, where he's he's attempting to, like save a video or access and they're like, you know, pulling out, uh, going, what is this CD-ROM? My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> We're dealing with Steve jobs here. Um, there, there is something that she, that makes her more special in that time period than maybe, maybe now where the expectation is that you should be able to contact anyone, no matter how famous, yeah. whether they read it or not, but you should be able to, in some way touch them. I guess that's how they had to do it back then. You know, if she could leave the house and get on a plane, you're, you're talking about a very different movie where, I mean, you're removing the stalker aspect of it entirely. She's just like, you know, professor X or somebody calling in with her expertise on something that doesn't really have anything to do with her. There's no inherent threat to her just to like put herself out there and try to help the detectives. But this way there is. Right. So, I mean, if you remade this movie in uh, 2019, um, you, she's probably not going to care about getting, like you said, tons of messages and her DMs or being subtweeted, any of that kind. Yeah, I said it. I'm still hip. Uh, uh, direct messages. Um, but <laughs> she's she's not going to – I'm not going to say she's not going to care. I don't want to necessarily make that generalization. Um, but you're, you, like you said, there's a greater chance it's an experience that's not new. And I mean uh, there's an email out. alert. It's like, oh crap! I better answer that. <laughs> like, as opposed to now, where it's like, how much junk? Like, oh, I have two thousand messages on a Tuesday. I was gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was an experience then, which I, I don't actually think is just it being in the movie. I do think. I mean, you were too too young at six, but I do think as a teenager that someone sending you an email was something like this. This must be something I should check because this yeah. doesn't happen. Even at, uh, let's say, 2000 when I was 12, uh, getting an email was a big deal. Receiving an email was <laughs> I like your reminder to the listeners yeah. on how much younger you are at various points. <laughs> <laughs> when I finally caught up to Mike's copycat days, it was the year 2000. <laughs> I think he was 33 at that time. And um, so for me, at uh, yeah, not even hitting uh, adolescence yet, it was interesting to see a one in my inbox. I didn't even know what an inbox was. So, um, yeah, completely different times. And that 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 um, technological or cultural gap is something to take into consideration. And it's something I tried to, to keep in, in my mind when I was watching it because uh, it's really easy for me to disconnect from 
just how they were responding to technology and how they were responding to the serial, you know, the, the copycats' abilities to 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 send them stuff and all kind of all kinds of things like that. I was like, oh, that's unrealistic, but no, it's it's not. None of that is is unrealistic to have such a strong emotional reaction to, um, because they're basically freaked out because this guy's more tech savvy than they are. Um, they don't know how to respond. He's he's basically in the house. Is kind of how they're just because they send you know, her an email. Yeah, exactly. And did a fantastic job with the photo editing. Oh, wonderful! Well, she learned how to do it pretty quickly too herself. She did. Um, so is that is that the the breakup, if you will, and the structure of this podcast when she starts antagonizing like the antagonist, where she sort of redirects the the staging of their roles. Probably because now you're you have a situation where. Uh, the copycat in the same way that the that um, Harry Connick Jr.'s character would have been when you're not controlling the terms of said relationship. Now, now everything's off and now it's probably going to go from the infatuation to more of the aggression uh, aspects of it. You want to be able to control the tone yeah, uh, no matter what. And so the moment she starts sending stuff back, it's wait, you're not you're not fearful. You're, you're not running from me. Um, now I'm mad. I need you to be afraid or I need you to be concerned about where I'm at. And she, she's just like, no, fuck that. Um, you can't, you can't touch me. And that's the moment I think that, that the copycat really finds a level of investment about getting to her physically. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, the grand gesture is a, like a physical staging, a recreation of like her worst moment. Uh, right. Miss killer, which, you know, she says many times in the film. Uh, and I guess if you've just like, if you listen to any other podcast that's on true crime, which automatically means it's way more popular than this bullshit right here. <laughs> like you've heard like with these people, like how much like the repetitive nature of like what they do and these relationships as skewed as they are, like the power dynamics of like the victim and like the, the perpetrator of these crimes, like the fact that they, I, I talked to you with you last episode, like this, this sort of gap in logic, that mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a totally normal person as far as like <laughs> spending my time doing this. I don't think is what like, <laughs> like for instance, my dad, <laughs> like if I tried to explain this to him, it would sound as weird as that email sequence. <laughs> it's like, so you talk to someone <laughs> on this Skype machine over copycat a movie from 25 years moving, ago, moving pictures. Yes, the movie a, picture yeah. show. Uh, it was sound like an incredible waste of time to him, and that's probably a you know an iTunes review or you know a DM that I would get like after an episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you know th- that's something I just can't engage with or understand. Even like I feel like <laughs> strange about like having a physical type. Am I that easily like wired <laughs> that I just seek out like physical traits are normal. And that's pretty common. Like people are like, what's your type sure. or whatever for this, where you want to have the exact same thing, like this moment in time happen again. And for apparently serial killers, it's very common. And this film, right. he wants to dress her the same way. And he wants to participate in an act created by someone else. He wants to step into those shoes. I think that's the weirdest part about it, but <clears throat> that it's, I understand the idea that everything must be very regimented and routine um, because, again, that's the continuation of control over a, over an extended period of time. What makes it interesting is the idea that he's not uh, – his his routine is actually just recreation. His routine is not that I kill someone a certain way. My routine is that I kill a, you know, each one a certain way that follows a, a previous path. Um, Does that happen before to your knowledge? Not that I've not that I've heard. That's of. what I, I was mean, wondering. I, yeah. I felt like maybe that's just too out of bounds. Like it's too creative. It's very obsessive compulsive kind of kind of aspect where I, I I mean you cannot work outside of any boundary of of following this this obsession. Now, what does make some level of sense, and we've talked about this just briefly with like the Ted Bundy tapes and and things like that, where all this stuff is kind of getting hip again, is this romanticization or or just romanticizing. Uh, you know, the worst of our humanity uh romanticizing serial killers you'd see things just like i mean it wasn't just charles manson's family uh the family as he called it uh that that were obsessed with him he had followers um ted bundy uh, you had you know fangirls uh for ted for ted bundy so it's not 
it's not that much of a leap to me to think that you could have someone who has romanticized all of these serial killers and has those uh, um, kind of psychopathic traits and that those two are married together to get someone who's basically just carrying out all of these different types of murders um, because they it's it's the same as me having Michael Jordan on my wall in 1991. You know what I'm saying? It's it, it's that kind of thing of, of I want to be like Ted or I want to be like John or I want to be like fill in the blank. Um, so it'd be a lot of work. For someone <laughs> like that. It's a lot of research. Uh, so you're, God. you know, there's only so many Kobe's out there that try to mimic <laughs> MJ or, you know, Jason Tatum trying to mimic Kobe, like the very exactly. elite, but you do understand it. Yeah. As you mentioned, like I, I do take kind of great issue with the, <laughs> the true crime podcast and that, like, I'm not totally innocent of this, but like the, the Zodiac movie, the David Fincher movie, I never had so, any particular interest in the Zodiac killer. But I was totally engrossed by that film. And I could see someone taking like a deep dive into this, especially the unknown element where it was mm-hmm. unsolved and there's these theories about it. But the being a tourist in other people's worst moments or other people's tragedies, I don't I don't get at all. And I think that's why I gravitate towards the the cops and the the two cops in particular have have a great relationship like Holly Hunter and Dermot Mulroney have this like kind of will they or won't they which I really like because they don't really go the direction you think they will Not like there's um, yeah. and there's uh, there is like a flirtation there but there's also like seems to be like true respect like where if they never acted on it they would be totally fine there'd be like great you know it doesn't have to reach this moment and then if it doesn't become that then it was all right. like a waste um, once again, like I just did not give this, give this movie enough credit in 1995 where I'm like, I don't feel like I see supporting characters with that dynamic, like anymore, like the, the whole arc they go on with the cops, uh, you know, you said Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver would be the same character. I don't even think we see anything about the, this like love triangle at the police station, which really doesn't have anything to do with Sigourney Weaver being stalked by serial killers. Right. Not at all. I, I, and I get what you mean with being i mean just stripping it down it's fleshed out characters it's characters that are fleshed out not for the sake of driving the story um but just because we're kind of getting a snapshot of this police station and the dynamics that are involved with you know these three uh folks that work there um and it's not that they're throwaway like things that someone just threw into the plot uh just to fill time it's okay we're we're getting an idea that these are are, are there's a lot of elements to their relationship and some of it's important to the to the serial killer some of it's not um but it's important to to their perspectives and it's important to how they view their place in all of this um and it, it's i'm trying to think if there's anything that i've seen recently that wasn't that that was an actual film where they were able to do that um yeah you, you see it in tv a lot more today than i think well, that you have there's time right and, there, there's, and there's, time, there's an right. expectation that you have an ensemble cast use them right would just be probably holly hunter Sigourney weaver would be the expectation put their heads on the poster and who's the killer stalking them but i i love that there's you know and if you've not seen it i guess i won't like spoil it but there is there's like a violent act that happens in the film a danger that has nothing to do fuck all do with the serial killer subplot yeah. and i like that you were talking about romanticizing serial killers i feel like that's in this film to kind of remind the audience and also remind these characters that just because there's this crazy kooky serial killer that the world is going to keep going on and there's other mm-hmm. there are other people who are not that bright that are going to do just as much harm as him, but right. no, no there one are other will, threats. No one will write about those people who, you know, will, will murder someone for really no reason. But if they're not interesting enough, then we don't elevate that death. We don't elevate what happened to that particular victim because it wasn't dressed up with costumes or hitting particular dates. That's what's always kind of made me queasy about people giving too much credence to the mind the inner workings of i mean they're they're fuck-ups really i mean they, they are they're humans very dangerous fuck-ups they're well they're you know they 
<laughs> to go back to the NBA thing, like <laughs> they're playing under different rules and they're kind of cheesy as far as like, I kind of, you know, I honestly, I guess if you want to say get into the, the world of criminals, I probably have more respect for someone that is in it to make money. And like, that's their <laughs> motivating factor. And when they act out in violence, that's kind of the end of them. That's the, like, that's like, they always kind of knew it would come to that, but there yeah. was no master plan to like, you know, try to, to leave their big like paragraph on the world as far as like this meant something. Cause none of it really means anything it's, not to get it's too less dark. narcissism. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, mm-hmm. it's much less of a, of a one. Well, and, and I mean, I think that lends itself to even diagnosis because um, most, most serial killers are narcissists, but, or a lot of them are. Um, but you're right. If it's just, I need to make money or I want to be, Rich, it, it's it's less about um, I I want everyone to remember me even after I'm gone, so everything has to be sensational. It's I got to make some change. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, people do the same shit. with uh, you know drug sure. kingpins, but only kingpins, not not the ones who are lower level or even like middle management. That's why I like yeah. Breaking Bad. I enjoyed the early seasons because I enjoyed that idea of someone like. I could do this quickly and make a great deal of money. But like when people started having like, you know, Heisenberg, Walter White posters on their wall, like Scarface, I'm like, okay, is the, does the show know like it's gone into this territory? Like, is it going to touch on that? Or is it like embracing like, Oh, we've got this old bald white guy who used to be in a sitcom, <laughs> Malcolm middle. Now he's badass. And I'm like, no, he's not well, badass. Probably... He's pathetic yeah. is what he is. <laughs> Uh, the antihero. I mean, you you see this in I oh, see this in uh, horror films that that have too long of a run, um, where Freddy Krueger is is horrible and disgusting and awful and the worst. And now he's why is he making so many jokes by the fourth uh, film? Well, that's because people, all the kids, love Freddy and they want to go as him as you know, or they want to go as Freddy for Halloween. Oh, yeah. um, it's, it's Kramer we, coming through the door, and it's like, hey, yeah. there's Kramer again. Exactly. Yeah, it's Walter Watt on my on my wall now in college because that's hip. That's cool. Um, I want to be a drug dealer. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I knew when you pause, it's going to incriminate me like that. I'll just I'll just leave that. Um, <laughs> that might be the widest thing you've ever said. <laughs> like <laughs> Walter White made me want to be a drug dealer. <laughs> you want to buy some marijuana? <laughs> It's always why I was a Mad Men guy because Don <laughs> Draper, for as, as handsome as he is, he's also a pathetic character. And there were long stretches where I would kind of get into it with people who were fans of the show. Were like, ah, I don't, I don't know, man. He's like fucking crying. He's like puking on himself. I'm like, yeah, that's that comes yeah. with the drinking and the womanizing. Is the sh- <laughs> it's going to show you the parts where it's like, ah, I don't want to be Don Draper in those moments. I just want the good stuff, like the good stuff, <laughs> still being like, you know ethically dubious but it looks sure. fun i don't want to see the parts that don't look fun there's no well he has no like moment of really repenting for any of the things that he does i also so. like that about him quite a bit yeah <laughs> unapologetic <laughs> even when he apologizes it's not really a, a valid or genuine one you know it's just a misstep before he gets back no, just... on the right path his path. well there's a lot of missteps there but i'm judging his character obviously i you know hate to do that i think that's uh going back to copycat like that there is a pleasure in seeing this guy fucked with when he's he's thought this is this is basically the way of the world and it's like the way i want to shape it and create it and that you, you see a lot of that now i don't believe as much i feel like it's kind of like the war on christmas but you definitely see it i think more with conservative leaning or older sort of mentality that like we've created a generation of kids who think that they they can be president or they can do this that and we've gone too far to where they sure. what you're saying where their their worldview is so skewed that they won't accept you know what is not already sort of in their mind's eye of how things should turn out which could be incredibly dangerous like i'm not saying to the, like outwardly to other people but probably to themselves as far as what you know they may find themselves like a much less handsome Don Draper puking on themselves like to get away from <laughs> the fact that they're not, you know, banging every 60s supermodel that's laying around. 
So, yeah, I guess the what we've come to the conclusion of is that all the, the things that we tell kids about what you can be when you grow up is all bullshit. Really, it's you're just it's just mediocrity. Well, OK, I'll ask you. Like, Which what, is me. What, I agree. What do you uh, what 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 would your expectation be like as a, as a father when, you know, years down the road, when oh. you're, you're starting to see your son develop, you mm-hmm. know, to me, I don't have a problem with that baseline argument that, like, yes, you could be any number of things. Sure. But I guess there's the expectation that through their own negative things that happen in, like, adolescence or whatever, or that they'll find an avenue that is more realistic or they'll they'll find some sort of pleasure in things that are not uh, world-shaping, not, like, on sure. a grand scale. Not everybody's going to be LeBron James. Not everyone's going to be president. That one should be easier it. based on you know, whatever your height is. You get to about <laughs> well, <yeah>. 14, 15. <laughs> Not everyone's going to be a neurosurgeon. See, I would say uh, I'll, I'll top your you know earlier white statement and go probably not as white as Walter White made me want to become a drug dealer. <laughs> but the, the threat would be like not everyone can be John Stockton because – <laughs> anyone <laughs> hear me out anyone could be reasonably like six foot six foot one white point guard who's not incredibly like athletically gifted sure i think that's the one that you got to knock kids off of that you're not going to be john stockton you don't even need to entertain yeah. lebron james because if they're you know, if they're six eight six nine maybe you actually should encourage maybe them to try to be like lebron james <laughs> if they're six feet tall I don't know if the NBA is the very first thing you scratch off the list. That is true. I don't know. I haven't really thought about my expectations because it, it's that I think that gets you into uh, some some trouble with with even wanting to live vicariously through your own children um, and expecting them to to do all these great and wonderful things that you yourself didn't fucking do. So uh, it's uh, that's a well. How difficult. did you how did you fall into like what you're doing now? Because I can't, you know, imagine that when you were sixteen, you were thinking. Oh yeah, that's. You know, I even remember being in college in undergrad and thinking when I was I had a professor that was lecturing. It was a really good lecture, and I was like, "Oh, I would really like to do something like that one day." Yeah, but that's not gonna happen. <laughs> even something <laughs> like that, and it's not that I didn't think I was capable, but there were still things about me, character-wise, that I just didn't think would mature the way that they needed to. Uh, to be able to, to do stuff like that. And so, you know, even in undergrad, uh, uh, in grad school, there were still periods in which I was like, well, this isn't going to work out the way that I'm wanting it to, or, or, or the idea that I'm having for, for, you know, in the best kind of way. It's like, if it, if I fall somewhere middle of the road with counseling or middle of the road with, with, you know, such and such, maybe. Um, but I've never been the one to think, well, I'm going to be the you know, the best therapist in the state, or I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a professor, uh, before I'm 30. No, I, I didn't make those assumptions. Um, and I, I think re- being realistic with, with, you know your kids even though i've not been a father for very long is 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 something that you're you're, i think is a responsibility not telling him hey you can't you're not gonna be able to do x y and z but listen if you're not six foot eight uh you know you're you're probably not going to you know retire uh, having scored forty thousand points baseball might be the direction go yeah i think real being realistic is 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 a little fair i think i like how this is wrapping up because I started the podcast saying this is a great film because, uh, you know, the Trump administration has told us to not believe in experts. And we've come full circle. Where we're telling people like, you will never become an expert. In anything. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that means we're showing the same amount of respect, like, you know, for the elite, but we're, we're talking about it. Like, Oh, that's impossible. You can't be the best in your field. I mean, I guess you can, but there. But if you are, then then you know what? Somebody else's kid isn't. Then so there's there's only gonna be one. I mean, this movie shows that it's you know it's a tough road to to hoe if you're uh, Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> She's number one, but look what look what happens. Exactly. Maybe you don't want to be number one. Maybe you can be the the sixtieth best uh, uh, profiler of serial killers. You want to be and John Stockton? You, know you can be the John Stockton. Exactly. And you know what? You can walk outside your apartment. No big deal. Whatever short shorts you want to wear. Oh. <laughs> have nuts just hanging out. <laughs> well, see, I was thinking about never. Uh, what? No. <laughs> Nobody will see because no one's looking for John Stockton. 
<laughs> just have them just drooped. Yeah, that's fine. It's not the direction I thought this was going to go. <laughs> Derek, where can people follow you? <laughs> they they don't want to. Um, but uh, Day Stew on Twitter. It's D-A-Y-S-T-E-W. A lot of interesting content. Very similar I mean, to this sports episode. related. Sport. I, I don't know if the focus is on that great Utah Jazz player from the 80s and 90s, but it should be Derek. This is Inspector Monahan. I'll be speaking for Dr. Hudson. I'm hanging up. I ain't talking to no cop. Or you Dr. Hudson just received your book. Do you know anything about it? Oh, yeah. I surely do, but uh, that's all I'm saying until that foxy lady gets on the horn. Put her on. Hello, Mr. Cullum. Doc, I've been expecting your call. Hey, from one author to another, how'd you like my book? What do you know about the man who delivered it? Peter Curtin. What about him? Peter Curtin? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter Curtin is the name of a serial killer from the 30s in Germany. I'll be damned. He took that man's name. He bothering you? He broke into my apartment to leave your book. Kind of a hand delivery, huh? Did you put him up to it? Doc. This curtain guy, he's been writing me all these letters. I figured, I figured he owed me a couple of favors. So I sent a book with him to your house. I didn't think he'd break in, though. Yeah, steer clear of that son of a gun. He's a freak. He told me he's gonna send me $500 for some of my, uh, my, my spirit. He said that he could make me immortal if he had some of my spirit. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of embarrassing, huh? I don't really want to say it right out in front of a lady and all. Well, I think I know what you're referring to, so what did you do about it? I took some of that liquid soap and put it in one of them sandwich baggies with a message from Jesus, telling him to mend his ways. How are you going to contact Curtin? This buddy of mine got paroled a couple of days ago. I figured I'd just send a baggie with him, and Curtin was going to hook up with him. Where? Do you know when and where? All depends, Doc. Depends on what? You see, it gets awful lonesome in here, Doc. I think about you all the time. A personal token would be nice. Let's see. Something feminine. Something lacy. Something really. Something pretty. I got it. Send me some of your squirrel covers. I beg your pardon? I beg your pardon. Your panties. You wear them, don't you? That's what I want. Look, I want them autographed to me personally. Darryl Lee Cullum. Deal? That's a promise.